section in our text is Romans chapter 8. If you'll look at your bulletin outline, the first point concerning this is God's extended family. We learned last week that Jesus is called in Scripture the only begotten of God the Father. Uniquely begotten is more to the point because the word begotten when referring to Jesus as we discovered has nothing to do with the Father producing or creating the Son. No, because the Son is eternal. That means He is ever present. He has always been present. There has never been a time when He has been absent from existence, just like God the Father, just like God the Holy Spirit. There was a never, never a time when the Son of God did not exist. So, begotten of the Father, that phrase, or similar descriptions, refer to His eternal position or status, His station within the Godhead. He is the Son. He was always the Son. He will never be anything but the Son. And as Son, we see Him eager to do the will of the Father, even when that meant a cross in His future when He became a man. Mary's role in all of this was to provide a conduit, an incubator, as it were, by which God the Son in spirit form could take on a flesh and blood body and become a man without, and this is important, without losing his deity. He is Emmanuel, to give him another name, God with us, God in a human body. Didn't lose his deity, he just added something to his personhood, and that was humanity. That's what we mean by incarnation. God encased in flesh. So he is both God and man without any crossover. I know this is mysterious. No admixture here. And that's truly unique. So we learn that Joseph, while engaged to Mary, was bewildered that she was already pregnant until he learned that Mary's child was God's creation within her womb. And so in faith, believing that to be true, he refrained, the scripture says, from having marital relations with Mary until after Jesus was born. So that no one could say, ah, it's really Joseph's child. No, no. So, so far, so good. Christ, the uniquely begotten of the Father, the Holy Spirit generating him, him taking upon himself a human body and a human nature. But then the question comes, how can ordinary people like you and me be labeled in Scripture as we are labeled in Scripture, children or sons of God? You read that. How may we be given the legitimate right to call God Abba, which is Aramaic for daddy, and it's less formal. I understand we don't normally think of calling God the Father daddy, but that's what Abba means. And then the next comma, father. 
We call him daddy, but we also revere him as father. How can we legitimately call God our father? Is this presumption on our part? I mean, if Jesus is the only begotten of the Father, doesn't that kind of answer the question then and there? Well, if He is the only begotten of God, how dare we be designated children of God or sons of God? How did God have other children? That's our question. That brings us then to the biblical perimeters of adoption. Adoption. Notice in your bulletin outline, firstly, adoption is not a man-made invention to address the problem of unwanted or orphaned children. It is not a man-made institution. Adoption was the invention of God from eternity before the fall into sin, before every baby born was born with a sin nature, which made them dead spiritually towards God and at odds with their Creator. This is what the Bible means when it teaches that we were born in sin. It's referring to original sin, sin nature. David puts it this way, Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Psalm 51, verse 5. Paul confessed to the Ephesian brethren, All of us who lived among them, the pagans, at one time gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature, and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath, Ephesians 2 and verse 3. Or we have it in Romans 5 verse 12. Therefore, just as sin entered into the world through one man, Adam, and death through sin, and in this way death came to all men because all sinned. What he's saying here is that Adam's nature was passed on to his children and their children and their children and their children and right on down to the present day. That's what happens. Happened, excuse me, with regard to Adam and his sin. Now we talk about children being innocent of sin, not because they are, but because they have not learned all the expressions of sin that come with living in a uh, lifetime living in a sinful world. And so we say they're innocent. They don't know about this sin or that sin or the intricacies of that path to take and so on and so forth. And that's okay as long as we understand that they were born with Adam's sinful nature and will sin and do sin. So adoption then has to do with God being fatherly towards sinners by nature who would just as soon spit in his eye. Rebels all and more in love with sin than with the holiness of God. Paul again writes it this, or James writes it this way. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sin in which you used to live. When you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of this air, Satan, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. Ephesians 2, 1 and 2. Where was our allegiance? Paul says, with Satan, the arch enemy of God. With the ways of the world. And James says it this way. Don't you know 
that friendship with the world is hatred towards God. Or again, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. James 4, verse 4. So adoption was not invented by man. It was invented by God. And he's dealing here with some pretty horrific things. I mean, when we think about this, who, children who become an enemy of God, people, who would want a child like that? And that's the second characteristic. What does God have to choose from for adopted children? He has to choose children that are unwanted. David and Felicia Lee, our missionaries to Romania, make reference in their December newsletter to an orphanage in Romania, which is part of their outreach. And it houses, get this now, adolescent teenagers, all of whom have HIV. They have the AIDS disease. And David writes, all of these kids were born with the disease. Now, they're teenagers, but they were all born with the disease. He goes on. Originally, 30 children lived in the home. Today, there are 18 left. Death took the others. Death took them. Not adoptive parents. Before we become self-righteous, when American couples apply for adoption, do they walk into the agency and say, show me the profiles of all of your adolescent teenagers? Is that what they say? No. They want a baby. Okay. Do they say, show me the babies who have cleft palates or club feet, who have heart disease. Is that what they say? I went on the March of Dimes website where they list the top birth defects in America, and here's what they write. The most common birth defects are heart defects, cleft lip, cleft palate, Down syndrome, spina bifida. Few adoptive parents would give these children a second look. And I'm not being holier than thou here. It would take <laughs> special parents to take care of these special children. The only point I am making is that in adoption we would look for such things as good health, Compatibility to our existing family, rapport and mutual love, mutual respect. In other words, we're trying to find a good fit. A good fit. Now, in stark contrast, God not only adopts physically impaired children, but he adopts brat children. Children who hate him. Children who kick against his goodness. Children who want nothing to do with being made a part of his family. They live in the gutter and they prefer that. 
They could care less about the mansion over the hilltop so long as they can continue with their illicit sex, their drunkenness, their lies, their drugs, their love of money, their love for power and fame, and everything else evil and rebellious to authority. They do not much contemplate or care about the consequences of such a lifestyle. They just know, I don't need God. Paul actually states this in Romans 1, verse 29 and following. He writes, They have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They are senseless, faithless, heartless, ruthless. And note the next verse, Romans 1, verse 32. Although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these very things, but they also approve of those who practice them. He is saying they know judgment is coming for these things, but they don't give a damn. Instead, they huddle with others who share the same thought processes, the same lifestyle, the good old boys club, where everyone pats the other on the back and defiantly proclaims that it'll all work out for them in the end. It'll all turn out for the good. Self-deluded with a bit of satanic pixie dust sprinkled in to blind them. They hang a shingle on the door of their heart that reads, God not needed. God not wanted. Now the startling reality, even for believers, is what Paul says. All of us, all of us, also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts, like the rest, we were, by nature, objects of wrath. Ephesians 2, verse 3. Now maybe you could exempt yourself from some of the sins that are listed in the Bible, but you can't exempt yourself from all of them. So whatever your sin, whatever your appetite, however you expressed your disobedience to God and preference for your heart's cravings, Sin is sin. The wages of sin is eternal death. There was nothing in you or me to commend us to God. That's the adoptive pool that God had to work with in eternal redemption. You're beginning to see something of the mercy and grace of God. I hope you are. And that's our third point. God's decree to adopt. When did this occur? Well, it was enacted in eternity past. Now that's a, <laughs> say, that's a really important that you understand that. Read Romans 9. It says before Jacob and Esau had done anything good or evil, God had made his determination to love Jacob and hate Esau. 
Let me read it to you from Ephesians 1, verse 4 and following. For he, God, chose us in him, listen now, before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which was freely given us in the one he loves. No, before the creation of the world. That's when God set in motion his intent to have a family that would be holy and blameless in his sight. God knew that sin would spoil the paradise that he would create for Adam and Eve. He knew they would sin and that that act of disobedience would doom the race. He knew that babies would be born possessing the same sinful nature of their parents. He knew that things would become so bad so wicked that it would take a universal flood to reset humanity with Noah. Well, it really got things really got bad. And sin continued right down to our present day, which is again becoming what Jesus predicted. Let me read it for you. As it was in the days of Noah, so it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. Matthew 24, verse 37. So we are moving in, in our uh, ancestry. We're moving right down the chain from Noah, the new head of the race, and we're becoming just like the people in Noah's day. And Jesus is saying, you know, guys, it's going to be that way again when the Son of Man comes. The Mayan calendar does not dictate the end of the world, but God's word does. Jesus, in the very previous verse, after stating this business about Noah, in the previous verse, here's what he says, no one knows about that day or hour, not even the angels in heaven, but not nor the Son, but only the Father. The panic that occurred last Friday among parents and local school officials who shut down the schools, by the way, for fear of violence on doomsday indicate the ongoing self-inflicted ignorance and defiance of God brought about by their own sin. If they knew their Bibles, if they were Christians, if they understood God's word, they wouldn't have been scared about my Whatsoever. You know, I slept pretty well last Thursday night, didn't you? I slept like a baby because I believe God. I trust the truth and integrity of His Word because the Scripture says it is impossible for God to lie. Hebrews 6, verse 9. Impossible. So if He said it, it's going to go down like that. The believer's future is charted by a divine decree in eternity past, not by the superstitions of a pagan culture. We read, God predestined us to be adopted as his son through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will. And as we have seen in previous studies, no one in heaven or earth can thwart the will of God. 
His word is literally his bond and his decrees are without fail. As he says in Hosea, I will call them my people who are not my people. I will call her my beloved one who is not my loved one. Now he's talking about this cesspool of God-haters that he has to work with. And it will happen that in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, they will be called sons of the living God. Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, Though the number of Israelites be like the sand by the sea, only the remnant will be saved. For the Lord will carry out His sentence on earth with speed and finality. It is just as Isaiah said previously, unless the Lord Almighty had left us descendants, we would have become like Sodom and we would have been like Gomorrah. That's Paul quoting from Isaiah, Romans 9, 25-29. God's God's decree of adoption is in eternity past and it stands. Secondly, it is implemented through Christ in time-space history. We're not talking theory here. We're talking actuality. Have you listened closely? Have you listened understandingly to the announcement of the angel to Joseph and later to the shepherds concerning Jesus' birth in Bethlehem? Let me read it for you again. To Joseph, speaking of Mary, she will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save, next phrase, his people from their sins. Not everybody, but his people from their sins. That includes the God-haters, of course. Matthew 1, 21. To the shepherds, the angel said, Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is Christ the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in claws and lying in a manger. And suddenly a great company of the heavenly hosts appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace to men. Next phrase. Peace to men on whom his favor rests. You see these phrases? They're not incidental. That's Luke 2, 11 through 14. This is not universal salvation. It is selective adoption which is taking place. Let me read it to you from another text. In bringing many sons to glory, it was fitting that God, for whom, and through whom everything exists, should make the author of their salvation perfect through suffering, both the one who makes men holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. Oh, okay, we better read on. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers. He says, I will declare your name to my brothers in the presence of the congregation. I will sing your praises. That's from Psalm 22. And again, I will put my trust in him. Isaiah 8, verse 17. And again, he says, here am I and the children God has given me. Isaiah 8, verse 19. He goes on. 
since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity so that by his death he might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but Abraham's descendants. For this reason he had to be made like his brothers in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people, his brothers. Because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. All of this from Hebrews 2, verse 10 through 18. Christ came to fulfill the conditions needed for adoption. He came to carry out God's decree. There's no guesswork here. There's nothing left to fate. There's nothing about free will choice. There's no ambiguity. In fact, the names, in fact, the names of all God's adopted children are registered before time. Did you know that about yourself? Revelation 17, verse 8 tells us that the inhabitants of the earth whose names have not been written in the book of life from the creation of the world will be astonished when they see the beast. That is, those whose names have not been written in that book. Oh, but what about those whose names are registered in heaven's logbook? Well, they will not worship the false gods. Revelation 21, verse 27 defines the occupants of heaven this way. Nothing impure will ever enter into it, nor will anyone who does not have his name written in the Lamb's book of life. Amen. If we're all sinners by birth and sinners by practice, if we're all God-haters and rebellious towards God's authority, how do we get to enter heaven? Paul, in one of his lists, says, Do you not know that the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God? Well, that's pretty sobering. Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor male prostitutes, nor homosexual offenders, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanders, nor swindlers. None of them will inherit the kingdom of God. And that is what some of you were. But, hmm, but you were washed. You were sanctified or made holy. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit God. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 8. Adoption occurred by an edict in eternity carried out in time-space history by Jesus and his cleansing work of the cross. Now thirdly, how does it get to be us? It is applied to us by the power of the Holy Spirit to those predestined for sonship in God's family. Now, we recognized last week 
that the Holy Spirit was instrumental in the creation of Jesus, human body, within Mary's womb. The angel answered, The Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of the Most High will overshadow you, so that the Holy One to be born will be called, not Joseph's son, not your son, but the Son of God. Luke 1, verse 35. Now, while Jesus is the uniquely begotten of the Father, from eternity, and his humanity was the miracle we call the virgin birth, in a totally other sense, every adopted son and daughter in God's family owes his rebirth to the Holy Spirit. Jesus told Nicodemus, I tell you the truth, no one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. John 3, verse 10. And four verses later, he says, Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to Spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying that you must be born again. John 3, verse 6 and 7. Why do people break God's law? Well, it's because they're sinners by nature, right? Sinning comes naturally to us. Living righteously does not. But sinners is what we are. We cannot change that, but change we must or we will not enter the kingdom of heaven. We just read that. So how do we change? Well, God has to change us. This is the work of His Holy Spirit. Does everyone in the world get changed? Well, if they did, then everyone would be assured of heaven, wouldn't they not? You just think of, the, think of that. But the Spirit does not save everyone. He doesn't work on everyone. Jesus said, the wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it's going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit, John 3, verse 6. Now, as we look at things, there is no predictability. Who will be made anew by the Spirit and who will not? It may look random to us. It may look accidental to us, but it is not. God's Spirit is working with a roster. The roster was recorded in eternity past. It contains the names of people. God the Father has set his affection on, and thereafter Christ came to die for those people, and his Spirit comes to apply that atonement to them with the results of forgiveness and reconciliation to those people and to give them a new godly nature now that's born again that no longer fights against God. Change the nature, and you change the reaction to God. Paul writes it this way, We know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body of sin might be done away with and that we should no longer be slaves to sin because anyone who has died has been freed from sin. Now if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. Romans 6, verse 6 through 8. In the creating of the new nature, the old sinful nature is replaced 
as the governing control on our lives. We have it in our text, verse 9. You, in contrast to the sinful mind which is hostile to God, verse 7, you, you believers, are controlled not by the sinful nature, but by the Spirit, if the Spirit of God lives in you. And if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, and that's the control that he gives, he does not belong to him. Therefore, be found How does a person controlled by the Holy Spirit act? He goes on. For if you live according to the sinful nature, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. Because those who are led by the Spirit of God are the sons of God. Romans 8, verse 17 and 21. There's your definition. So, God's decree to adopt was enacted in eternity past. It was implemented through Christ in time-space history, through his cross work and his righteous life. And thirdly, it is applied by the power of the Holy Spirit to those predestined for sonship in God's family. I don't see anything accidental or left to chance here. I could say it this way to all of you. If you're saved today, you're saved on purpose by God even before you existed God had you by name that's really remarkable by name written on his roster now what is the response of the adopted firstly humility and thankfulness I said that this pool of children to be adopted is was really a cesspool. Paul says in Romans, there's none righteous, no, not one. That's who God had to work with, the none righteous, no, not one. All we like sheep have gone astray. How many? All we like sheep have gone astray. You didn't have anybody that was righteous to work. When you think about that, you cause us to be humble and thankful. How'd you get your name on God's adoption roster? You didn't even exist when God wrote your name in the book of life. And when you did exist, you came into this world a rebel sinner like everyone else. You cannot say, well, you know, I was chosen to be adopted because when God walked into the orphanage, I was the kid with the sparkle of intelligence in my eye when he saw me. Or, you know, I was the person that did not wipe his nose with his sleeve, so I had some good upbringing. Or I was the one with good manners and a pleasant personality. And on and on we go. No, what you were was a child of wrath, even as the rest. The only reason you were adopted is because of the sovereign, uninfluenced decision of God, which he states in Romans 9, verse 14 and 15, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. Oh, yeah, God, but you have to have a reason for that. What's your criteria? I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. And the next verses go on to say, so it is not dependent upon. 
See, we always want to find a reason for our decisions. What's your reason? What's your reason? What's your reason? You got to have a reason. And we're looking for motive. Motive. We're dealing with a being here in the universe who operates on the basis of his free will choices. He's truly free will makes the choices. And is not influenced by anything he sees in us. Second response, verse 12 of our text. Therefore, brothers, we have an obligation, but it's not to the sinful nature to live according to it. Verse 15, for you did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear, but you received the spirit of sonship. And by him we cry out, Abba, Father. My second response is this, that since we are born anew, we do not revert back to the old slavish and sinful lifestyle. Paul mentions earlier in verse 7, the sinful mind is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law. Oh, no. How long have you claimed membership in the family of God and yet you're just as unfaithful to Him in Christian duties and just as rebellious as the day before you confessed your conversion? If that's you this morning, there's something wrong with you. Because the sons, the children of God, are at work to destroy the sinful nature and not obey its lusts, its cravings, its allurements and all of those things it wants to live, the new nature wants to be directed in the work of God. Third response, verse 17 18. Now if we are children, then we are heirs. Heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in His sufferings, in order that we may also share in His glory. Let this sink into you. If you're a child of God, you are an heir of God and co-heir with Jesus Christ. What's that mean to be an heir of God and a co-heir with Christ? It means that whatever belongs to God the Father, whatever comes by way of inheritance to Jesus Christ, you as adopted children get to share. Paul says, I consider that our present sufferings are not worthy comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. He's saying as believers we must develop a resignation that things are not always going to go well with us in this hostile world, but we're still heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. Jesus put it this way, I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world, you will have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world, John 16, verse 33. Cross did not crush Christ into oblivion, and persecution will not destroy you. You are clad in the armor of God by which you can extinguish the fiery darts of the evil one, even when they come from your so-called friends and relatives. You're a co-heir with Christ. This is adoption that blows your mind. You really think about it. Fourth response. 
In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groans and words that, cannot, words that words cannot express. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints in accordance with God's will. Romans 8, 14-17. Adopted children pray. Adopted children petition God for the yet-to-be-adopted. We pray for the loss. We pray for that arrogant rebel, that mocker, that God-hater who still comprises the people that we love. And by the way, this is not an exercise in futility. James says, confess your sins to each other, pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective, James 5, verse 16. And I would almost, almost say it this way, that no one is ever saved apart from God's people praying for them. Do not let the evil one suggest, yeah, your brother, your sister is a lost cause. He or she may be lost now, but the cause of their salvation is God's grace, and that's just around the corner. And if you are lost this morning, God's word to you is this, seek the Lord while he may be found. Call on him while he's near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the evil man his thoughts. Let him turn to the Lord and he will have mercy on him and to our God for he will freely pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. Isaiah 55, verse 6 through 9. Now in a message like I've preached this morning, some might ask, well, what? What if my name is not written in God's book of life? Those are some of the thoughts you're called upon to forsake. It's not your business to know in advance those answers. Your business is to do what God commands you to do. What does He command us to do? Seek God that He may be found. Call on Him while He's near. Forsake your evil ways. Turn to the merciful and pardoning Lord because His thoughts are not your thoughts. His thoughts are beyond your comprehension. Your task is to obey His call. Your task is to leave the that's why we broadcast the gospel in um, the old-fashioned way where they reached into a bag full of seed strapped over their shoulder and they would just cast the seed out. Now we use automated planters that drop one seed at a time in a furrow in the field. In the old days, they broadcasted seed. Jesus talks about that seed's going to fall on all kinds of soils. At least four different times he talks about it. Yeah, some of it's hard pan. Some of it's full of thorny bushes. Chokes it. But some of it's good soil where it will take root and 
you're sincere with God when you confess your sins and seek for his forgiveness, God remembers that. And God will allow that seed to take root. And you don't have to be thinking, am I among the adopted? Is my name written in the book? I wonder what God has for me. Just do what his book says. Do what the gospel says. Come to Christ. Repent of your sin. Plead for mercy. If you do that, guess what? That's the Holy Spirit already working in your life. That's what you need to know. If you feel your need of Him, as one of the songs we sing, that's all He asks. That's the Spirit of God doing His work in your life, bringing you to salvation in Him. Brethren, it's a glorious thing to be the adopted child of God and to know that you are no if you're a believer here this morning, you are saved on purpose. God has fulfilled his purpose in time, space, history. He had your name in the book. He brought you before the gospel. Someone gave you a tract. Godly mother or father prayed for you. Some, all of, some of those means or all of those means and many others. And God worked in your life, granted your faith, granted your repentance, and here you are. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for the work of adoption. Thank you for the Holy Spirit who grants to us that new nature so we stop fighting with you. There may be someone here this morning that needs that new nature. Every morning they wake up, every day they live, they're always fighting with you, fighting against your principles, fighting against your grace, fighting against your mercy loving their sin, preferring it over a righteous life, making excuse after excuse as to why they have not come to Christ. Lord, just sweep all that away right now, Lord. Oh, please, just sweep it all away. Grant them the faith and repentance that only you can give. And if they sense their need of you, that's your spirit working in them. Let them follow through, Lord, with that sense of need by obeying the scriptures, by calling upon you, by seeking you that they, that you might be found. And for we who know you, oh, let us rejoice this morning and be thankful because you just loved us from eternity and had nothing in us to distinguish us from any other sinner. For we were all in the cesspool and you set your affection upon us. What great grace. Bless us this day, we pray, with the truth of your word.